As you're turning there, I want you to think about what's on your Christmas list. What do you expect to get this year? And have you set your expectations high or have you set them low? I was thinking this week about Christmas 1990 when I was 16 years old. And I had set my expectations low. In fact, I had really set my expectation to know that there, that there would be no vehicle, automobile, truck, anything uh, for John Mark uh, that Christmas. Uh, we talked about it, had been looking a little bit, trying to find that uh, elusive, affordable, slash dependable used vehicle, and it just really come to the conclusion that it was going to be a while. So when there actually was a vehicle in the driveway that morning, my expectations were blown away. I had no expectation that there would be a vehicle that morning. So, of course, overjoyed and blown away. And when it comes to gifts like that, low expectations can be a good thing, right? Because it's much better to be pleasantly surprised than sorely disappointed. But when it, when it comes to what the Lord, when it comes to what the God of the universe has promised for you, rather than sitting back and, well, I'm not going to get my hopes up, I'll just kind of wait and see what happens and maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Y'all, we've got to press into what He's promised. We've got to expect that He's going to do what He said. And what He said is pretty amazing. We've got to lay claim to it. Quite frankly, we need to expect it. And this Christmas, you and I need to have great expectations. We're looking again at Isaiah this morning, as we've done for the past few weeks, getting his help to see what God was doing for his people 2,700 years ago, to get a sense of what he can and will do for his people today. And so in that, we've been trying to really get a handle on what does Christmas mean? What is this story all about? What is God up to in this? And if we can get even just a little handle on that, y'all, we're going to be blown away. And even from this passage this morning, though it is probably the the least well-known of the three that we're looking at, Isaiah 7 and then 9 and now 11, Probably seven and nine get all of the all of the, the airplay. But y'all, this passage from eleven, there's some great things that we need to be expecting from the Lord. Expecting for him to give us great faith, specifically great faith in a great king. I think I've got these, maybe there we go. Great hope, great transformation. And even a great purpose. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll look at Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. 
And then we'll take a close look at these great expectations. This is the Word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. May God bless the reading and teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you come now? And would you once again assist us to know, to understand, even to be pierced by your holy word? Would you do in and through us what is pleasing to you and what brings good to your people? We pray and even have great expectations that you'll do that, Lord. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So the first great expectation that we need to have from the Lord is great faith, specifically from this passage, great faith in a great king. We need for God to grant to us, as a gift of His grace, the faith to believe that He'll do what He promised. The, the faith to take him at his word, to believe that he'll do what he said. Do you typically tend to believe that God will do what he promised? Would you say that's the default response of your heart and of your mind? Great faith is something that has been sorely missing in this section of Isaiah that we've been in. If you think back to chapter 7 and and King Ahaz, he didn't have any faith, much less great faith. He refused, in fact, to believe that God would protect and provide and rescue. And, And rather than trusting God, he decided to ally himself and ally the nation with their very worst enemy, Assyria. Believing God seemed like too much of a long shot for him. 
But this foolish plan didn't. And so what Ahaz thought would be his savior became their executioner. And so God ends up using Assyria as his tool, as his tool of discipline and judgment because of Ahaz and because of Judah's unbelief. And so terrible destruction and desolation comes. And we've read through some of that in these chapters. But you don't need to think that Assyria gets away with anything. If you read between 7 and 11, you see that after the Lord uses Assyria as a tool for His purposes, then Assyria gets theirs. And so the two verses that conclude chapter 10 that are right before our verses today give us a picture of all of this destruction. First of how Judah has been destroyed, but now of how Assyria is destroyed. Look at these two verses. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. See, Assyria was great. They were the biggest and the baddest. And nobody could ever touch Assyria until. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is not a very promising picture as Isaiah 11 starts to unfold, it looks, in fact, like God's people have ceased to exist. The people that God originally promised to Abraham, He said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. The kingdom that God promised to David when He promised in 2 Samuel 7... One of your descendants will always be on the throne. And there's not even a throne anymore, much less a kingdom. There's not a nation. There's just a stump, a stump of a hewn down tree is how this chapter opens. But there's one thing we've got to remember. And therein lies the key of great faith. Is remembering. We've got to remember that God has always preserved His people. Always. Every single time it looked like they were on the brink. Here He comes again. He kept them from starving to death, so He got them to Egypt. He got them out of slavery in Egypt. He got them across the sea. He got them through the wilderness. He even saved them over and over and over again from their own sin and folly that if you read through the Old Testament is constantly threatening their very existence. Every single time He shows up. Not once did he fail to show up and deliver and rescue his people. And so part of great faith is remembering, just simply remembering the times before that he's shown up. 
Because He's always shown up. He's never not shown up. And very often He shows up in surprising ways. In ways that we never would have expected or planned or thought possible. And that's certainly the case today. Look at verse 1. There's this stump, this lifeless stump, but there shall come forth a shoot. There shall come forth a shoot. From destruction and ruin comes a sign of life. And so Isaiah begins to describe this one who will come and who will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. And he goes on to describe his ability to do all this. He says the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. And so if you read through the Old Testament, you know that the Spirit of the Lord sometimes comes on people in powerful ways to enable them and to to equip them to do certain things for the Lord. The the, the tabernacle workers in uh, Exodus 31-ish, Oholiab and Bezalel. Right? The Spirit of the Lord comes on them so that they can accomplish what they need to do in building and making ready the tabernacle. Judges 6, the, the Spirit of the Lord comes and rests upon Gideon to prepare him for battle. Right? And there are some even that, that have uh, what we would have to call like a permanent indwelling of the Spirit of the Lord. Right? Moses had that and Joshua had that and even David had that. This power, this enabling, this help. But nobody ever had the Spirit of the Lord as it's described here. This is unprecedented. We've got these three pairs in this verse that that describe the Spirit of the Lord's resting. And it's really, it's echoes from last week. It's echoes from that Isaiah 9, 6. And His name shall be called, right? And so we see these echoes here. We've got wisdom and understanding. We've got counsel and might. We've got knowledge in the fear of the Lord. And so verse 3 goes a little further in describing the benefits of the Spirit's help. And one of the big things here is that because of the Spirit's help, this king is going to be able to understand. He'll be able to see to the heart of a matter and not just rely on what he sees and hears on the surface. He's not going to judge on appearances which is very unlike Ahaz. All Ahaz could do was judge the situation based on what he saw and what he heard. He was very afraid. He didn't see any way that even God could help him get out of that mess. He didn't believe and because of it he was a fool. But not the one who's coming. Not the one who's coming. This shoot from the stump. The second half of verse 4 describes the might and the power of this king in very dramatic fashion. The only weapons that this king will need are his words. With his very words, he speaks and it happens. What a contrast to the weakness of Ahaz and the other earthly kings. Verse 5, you see the foundation, the very foundation of, of who he is. He's righteous and he's faithful. 
so very different. And so here's this great promise from God. He says, I'll send you salvation. I'll send you a real Savior. I'll send you a real King. I'll send you a great King, the King of all kings. And so when we remember His past faithfulness, when we remember every single time He's shown up before and we come to a new promise, we should expect for Him to give us great faith to believe. Second expectation is great hope. Great hope that there is a day coming. See, that's supposed to be part of this whole Advent season. We're supposed to be thinking about both comings of the Lord Jesus. His first coming, but we've also got to have our eyes on that day. The great day that is coming. Because that's where real hope is going to be found for today. We've got verses 6 through 9 here. They're very famous. And what they describe is just out of this world. Right? The wolf dwelling with the lamb. The leopard lying down with the young goat. I'm not going to read through the whole thing again. But you see there that everything's turned upside down. Absolutely everything from the way that we know that it works today. Everything is turned upside down, which is appropriate if you think about it. Because what is the Christmas story? What is the incarnation if it's not upside down? This great and glorious King who leaves His glory. Takes on flesh and comes to live among sinful men and women suffering the brokenness of this world. And here's the most upside down thing at all when you think about this king. Especially when you compare him to kings previous. This king doesn't come to impose himself on his subjects. This king doesn't come with the interest of self. This king comes with the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And rather than imposing himself on his subjects, saying, you've got to serve me. He lays down his life and he dies for his subjects. And through his death and resurrection, amazing power is unleashed. To borrow the the language of C.S. Lewis, the way that he describes this in the Chronicles of Narnia is that when, when Aslan has died and the table upon which he is slain cracks in two, he describes it as death beginning to work backwards. When Christ died and rose again, Power was unleashed and death has begun to work backwards. And we see that in this passage so beautifully. Everything is changed. 
the very natures of these animals, the effects of the fall are being reversed. Old hostilities are reconciled. Violence and danger are gone. The curse is removed. You see, when Messiah comes, bringing with Him the hope of the Gospel, this glorious good news, everything is changed. Absolutely everything. Now, obviously, it's not all realized yet. The whole snake thing, yeah, that's still dangerous. Don't do that yet. And so we're in the midst of this already and this not yet. Right? The kingdom has been ushered in, but it's not fully realized yet. It's not been fully brought to completion, but it will be. And that's our promise. That's our very hope. That's our great hope that we should expect that if we can somehow have our minds wrapped around this Christmas story and realize how upside down it is that the king would die for his people, We know that that day is coming. It is sure and certain. Now think about this for a second. If even the very nature of these animals is changed and transformed, utterly, totally, completely, radically, should we not also expect to be transformed in this deal? And so that's our third point, that one of our great expectations would be coming out of this Christmas story is that we would be transformed as well. So let me backtrack just a little bit. Look back at verse 1, all right? This shoot is going to come forth, and it's not just going to be a shoot. It's going to be a, a full-fledged tree that will bear Fruit. Isaiah gets quoted a ton in the New Testament. So many rich things from Isaiah that the New Testament writers are picking up on. And even Jesus himself seems to have these verses from 11 in mind. When he's talking things over with the Jewish leaders... They're really upset with him. They're even seeking to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And so John records for us in chapter 7, Jesus was, was picking up on these Isaiah 11 verses as well. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You hear the echo of, of Isaiah 11 there? About this king's judgment is not going to be based on appearances. He'll have righteous judgment. And so it seems here that Jesus has some expectation, if you will, that his people, that his followers would reflect some of his 
character, would reflect some of his nature, you too need to judge with right judgment, not based on appearances. Jesus seems to have this expectation here. And from what we know from the rest of Scripture, that jives with the rest of Scripture too. That as his followers, we ought to reflect him. We ought to even be conformed to his likeness. And so in Romans 8, right, everybody knows Romans 8, 28, right? God's working all things together for good. Romans 8, 29 is pretty important too. That comes immediately after it, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? And a lot of folks, that's, they just end right there because they're too hung up on foreknowledge and predestination. And, and those are important concepts. But get to the point. What's the point of predestination? What's the point of God's foreknowledge and his calling? That we be conformed to the image of his son. That we be made like him progressively more and more in this life. That we would be reflecting some of these things that we've seen in Isaiah 11 about him. So if you look back through, like verses 3 to 5 especially... Right? How are we doing? Are we reflecting these qualities? Are we being conformed to his image? Verse 3, is your soul's solitary delight in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord? Can you say that this morning? How are we doing? How are we doing? Is that your delight to stand in awe of the Lord? Can you say, nothing brings me greater delight? And then can you say that because of that delight, because you see these things are connected, they come one right after the other, because of that delight, I'm able to see beyond the appearances of my situation. Because I'm delighting in the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, I'm able to not judge based on just what I've seen or what I've heard. But I'm able to remember the promise that's been made. And all the promises that have been kept. Verse 4 is, is very interesting to me. Now it's a little clunky because of, because of the English. Because I read it and I was like, um, alright, so why do the poor need to be judged? Right? But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. But I think our English is just a little clunky there. And, and it's helpful if we think maybe more in terms of governing. Right? With righteousness he shall you shall govern the poor because that's wrapped up in the meaning of that word. Um, or uh, if you want to hang on to judgment there, think of dispensing justice, right? But with righteousness he shall dispense justice. That's what a judge does, right? He shall dispense justice for the poor, right? But, but it's, it's the poor here and it's the meek that are the really important parts, right? And so it's not financially poor. We're not talking about economics here, right? There's a lot wrapped up in this word too. This is, these are the downtrodden. These are the needy. These are the desperate. The down and out. And so there are echoes, I think, of Isaiah 11 in the Beatitudes that come during the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It, it's the poor who are blessed. It's the meek who are going to inherit the earth. All right, and so here's a big key for our transformation of our being 
conform to Christ. It's recognizing who Jesus came for. Who did he come for? He came for the poor. He came for the needy. He came for the down and out. He didn't come for the competent. He didn't come to put his stamp of approval on our hard work or to pat us on the back for getting really close and we just need a little just a little help from Jesus is all we need. Read through the Gospels. Who was Jesus' heart drawn toward? What types of people were drawn to Him and felt like, hey, here's somebody safe I can go to. Here's somebody I can tell my story to. It's not the competent. It's not the qualified. It's not the religious. It's the desperate. It's the destitute. And as soon as we realize that that's who he came for, and that we realize that we're them, that's when transformation can begin. That's when our great expectation of great transformation begins to become reality. Finally, we need a great expectation of a great purpose. Let's look at this last verse. And I hope that you will allow it to blow your mind because it's wonderful. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now hang on just a minute. Is he the root or is he the shoot? Because verse 1 said he was the shoot. All right, so think about your family tree. Think about these branches, right? So-and-so married so-and-so, and then you got branches, right? Here's who they produced. Here's who came after them. That's how the family tree works. It branches out. And so in verse 1 he's called the shoot from the stump of Jesse. But now at the end of this passage, he's the root of Jesse. So which is it? Did he come from Jesse? Or was he the source from which Jesse came? And the answer, of course, is yes. And we've got to let that blow our minds just a little bit. Because this is the mind-blowing part about Christmas that we're just way too familiar with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't yeah, yeah, yeah over this. 
This descendant of Jesse was before Jesse. He's the pre-existent and eternal Son of God. This baby who was born is the great I Am. Who's present at creation. And it's something that Jesus fully embraced about himself. He, he knew it to be true. And so later on in John, when he continues to discuss things with the religious leaders, and they're so stuck on being descendants of Abraham. Abraham's our father. Abraham's making such a... And he says, guys, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Even at the, the close of Revelation, Revelation twenty two sixteen, we've got another echo of, of Isaiah eleven. I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Y'all, we got to chew on that a little bit. You've got to let that flood your mind and your heart a little bit and not be so used to it and familiar with it this season. And if you will allow yourself to do that, you'll see a little bit of His glory. You'll see a little bit of the, the end of that verse 10. His resting place, the resting place of this shoot is, and it's not really glorious, because it's not the adjective, it's the noun. His resting place is glory because of who He is and what He's done. And as such, He's worthy of worship. And He's not just worthy of our worship, He's worthy of worldwide glory and worship. This is the one of whom the nations will inquire. This is the one who will be a signal for all the peoples. You're included in God's plan. You're included in His gospel promises. And therein lies our purpose. As subjects of this one, of this eternally existent and glorious one, we're his subjects and therefore we are his ambassadors. And so we've got great purpose. And so I hope when you think back to your Christmas list, that you will include on it some great expectations what the Lord longs to give you, what He's promised to give you in terms of great faith and great hope in that day that is coming, that is sure and certain, in the transformation that He promises to bring you, that He has predestined that you would be conformed to His Son. He's planned it from the beginning. He's going to do it. He's going to see it through. And He wants to use you. He wants to use you. May, may the Lord grant to us great expectations this holiday season. Let's pray together. Oh God, you're a great God and your promises are astounding. 
Lord Jesus, You are astounding. That You were willing to set aside. That You were willing to suffer and die. That You released great power in Your death and resurrection. Power that we benefit from even this moment. Father, I pray that You take our puny little expectations and our passiveness of just sitting and hoping that maybe You'll do something great. And that You take the truth of Your Word and You take the truth of who You are and what You've done and You blow the doors off our puny and weak expectations. You grant to us the faith that You've promised and that You cause us to hope and to trust deeply in You this Christmas season. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.